Double Take is an extension of the award-winning movie review show Cinema Classics, which airs Thursdays at 8.01 p.m. on WCBE 90.5 FM, Columbus, Ohio. Hosted by John DeSando, this podcast features additional content and discussions with guests. I'm John DeSando. And I'm K.G. Klein. And this is Double Take. And Ken, what do you know? We have what you and I think is a classic. And not everybody else is going to, and it's 18 years old. Well, it is always great when we can introduce our audience, which we know is a very educated bunch, yes. to a movie that they almost certainly didn't see in theaters, and that they probably <laughs> haven't seen on streaming either. And that's, it's hard for us to find films that are that exclusive, but so good that people really do need to see them. And if nothing else will get you, the title would. Brick. Brick. What a simple title. It, it, the title refers to a brick of cocaine. Yes. And, and the hardness of a brick, the toughness of the, of the world. Yeah, very obscure title and a film that doesn't, a title that doesn't really do a good job of describing this movie. I know it but, does. So what makes this movie so interesting? Well, I, I always love looking at the first films of new young directors yeah. because that's a moment when a director f- has an opportunity to use their voice in a unrestricted way. They, they often spend a lot of time finding the funding, no studios looking at this, they gather together a crew, it's guerrilla filmmaking, they put it together as best they can. It's very it's cheap in this very case. Cheap. This movie was made in 2005 on a budget of $450,000. And the director you're talking about is Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson. And people should know him well, now. Better known for the, as directing uh, Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, but we won't hold that against him for this movie. This is his first film, and this was a film that he wrote while and, he was in and, film school. And let me just uh, refer people to kind of say, oh, yeah, I know that. Knives Out. Knives Out, and A Glass Onion. Onion. Glass Onion. Yeah. yeah. And, so and, those yeah. are recent, within the last couple of years. Recent films. And popular, and hardly as intricate. I call this intricate, even though it looks rude sometimes. This is such an interesting movie, and it, it is very obviously a first-time director movie. It has almost a 70s feel to it. So let's, let's step back and, and tell the audience <laughs> what this film is. Yes. It is film noir, hard-boiled detective story set in a high school with a cast of high school students. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is, who is really engaging. He's wonderful in this. Yeah. You know, I, I remember him best from uh, Third Rock from the Sun, yeah. where he played the young boy Tommy. And you were telling me he actually does TV these days. He does quite a bit of TV. Yeah. The, and they, then also Lucas Haas, uh, playing the crime boss, yeah. who we know from being the little Amish boy in Witness. <laughs> and when you look at Gordon-Levitt on this, you can... You, you're not going to see Bogart. No. But you're no. going to be thinking of the Maltese Falcon somewhere or another here. And that is the origins of this film, is, is yeah. Ryan Johnson saw the Maltese Falcon uh, when he was in high school and started reading Dashiell Hammett novels. And he loved these novels, and he thought, how can I write a script that uses this Dashiell Hammett style of writing, style of talking, but place it in a much more modern and up-to-date setting? And ultimately, it, it caught up to him that, hey, I can film this very inexpensively if I film it in my high school, and we'd use all high school and kids. The, a high school is an endless place for <laughs> stories, as we know, with the type of characters there, with the dynamics of it, and yet... There's not a one scene, I think, in, the, in a classroom in this film. 
Uh, no, we don't get to see the classrooms. No, I know. So no. you're outside. You're outside a pie shop. You're in, we, you're in the, the parking lot. The movie was filmed in Ryan Johnson's <laughs> own high school in San Clemente, California, uh, because he was able to get access to it very inexpensively. Yes, yes. And, uh, and, and they, they really did. They spent six years getting this movie going, uh, trying to find the funding. Uh, they were constantly having to recast it as the actors aged out before the production had started. <laughs> they didn't finally finish the casting until until just a few weeks before they started shooting. Well, the, the similarity comes when Gordon Levitt's character acts like a Seamus. Is that uh, you know he's he's a detective yeah. in, in in his own way. He's a, he's searching out the cause of the death of his girlfriend. What sets the movie into motion is Brandon's girlfriend or ex girlfriend Emily has been found dead by Brandon, and he's determined to get to the bottom of this and find out who's responsible for her death. Unless you think you're going to miss out on some of the more the juicier parts of film noir, we have a couple of luscious femme fatales here, <laughs> and Laura being the best and most difficult, and M, not, not so much, because we don't see that much of her. Emily is played by, and I can't remember her name now, but she yeah, would, yeah. Go, would get a, um, a role on Lost. So we would see her just about a year later uh, on the TV show Emilie Lost. De Raven, uh, Emily as Emily de Raven, her, uh, actually her same name. Oh, yeah. Emily yeah. and Emily. Emily. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What other, Ken, because I know we have people there who are not quite sure what we, they've heard this term film noir, and you might call this neo-noir. Because we, you're talking late 20s and 30s for Dashiell Hammett. It's the films like Maltese Falcon, where it's a very stylized type of speech where the, the actors are using a dialect and almost a, a dictionary that's unique to the genre. For instance, there's a line in here where Laura says, I didn't heal you to get your interest. <laughs> yeah. And it's filled with this. And I, I love, this is one of the reasons why this film has attained a cult status, is it's so interesting to see these 19- and 20-year-old actors talking like they're straight out of a Sam Spade movie. And not everything makes sense. It doesn't, in the, in the best of your film noir, there aren't pieces that always easily work together. That's part of its charm. These sidetracks and these characters who come in and out, not always directly related to the death or the murder or whatever. Our detective, best exemplified by Bogart, is usually somewhat out of it. Brandon is a sort of a lurking, uh, brooding, <laughs> quiet kid who's always sort of been outside the social uh, circles of his school. And then what brings him in and causes him to conflict with everybody at school is the death of M, because now he's got to use these people to get to the bottom of yeah, it. Yeah. And there's a crime boss played by Lucas Haas, who's yes. known as the Pin. Yeah. And I love how, how Ryan Johnson realized that in the Dashiell Hammett novels, the crime boss is always sort of a comical figure. Because when you read the Maltese Falcon, you're hearing, you're going to have to see the fat man. And the oh, wait till you see the fat man. The fat man's yeah, looking Sydney for you. Greenstreet. Yeah, he's this, this, this very, very imposing figure. But then when you finally meet the fat man, he's a comical figure. He, he's, he's got a lot of character flaws. And they, they carry this movie, that into the script as well. When you finally get to meet the pin... He's a kid dressed like Barnabas yeah. Collins from a, Dark Shadows. Right, yeah, with these striking ears 
in this vacant look and, and living out of his right, mother's right. basement. But he does have his thug with him. Tug, tug, tug yeah, the thug, the thug. Uh, right, yeah, and that's his 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 uh, muscle, right, brainless muscle. And actually, there are some who have taken each character and paralleled it with those in Falcon. All of the classic character archetypes yeah. are represented in this movie, and yes. that's one of the things that makes this movie so satisfying. Is you can see that there's direct parallels between the characters in the in, in Brick and the characters in the Maltese Falcon. In this case, uh, the uh, Brendan, who was played by Gordon Levitt, seems to me to have beaten up brutally. He gets beaten up several he, times. He lets himself because yeah. we've seen him. He should be able to handle himself, but he lets yeah. himself be beaten a lot in the face. He's trying to get in yeah. so that he can see yeah. and meet the pin, and allowing Tug to beat him up. Yeah, so this is the is, way to the pin. This is not a, an imitation of the typical Bogart detective, because I think actually Gordon Levitt has a little more control of his circumstances than than Bogey does in his. He doesn't quite have the control that Gordon Levitt has because allowing himself to get beaten up is yeah. getting inside. Yes. Bogart being a detective, he was on the outside from the start, so he had to figure out who to talk to to get inside. But, of course, Brandon, yes. already being a member of the high school, he knows all of these people, yep. and he knows who to talk to and ultimately what he needs to do to get into the crowd that can connect him with the murderer. <laughs> the term film noir. You've spoken about it in cinema classics, and we're going to come back to it again. You can start out by saying it's dark. Noir is black or dark. So the, you, you know that the, it's characteristically dark. So you're not going to see some brilliantly lit sets. You're going to see a lot of shadows, a lot of ambiguity. Film noir is almost always crime dramas. Yeah. They almost always involve a detective. There's a very... The, the, the dialogue is very stylized. And we can trace film noir back to the 1920s. It really peaked during the era when Bogey was around in the, in the early 40s with movies like The Maltese Falcon. But then it had a resurgence again in the 70s with Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And yes. Chinatown, one of the great film noir movies, even though it's decades after And the even peak. though it's in color. And the, even though it's in color. Right. And I love that, that they were bold enough to do that. And oh, you yes. knew anyway, because of Jack Nicholson's uh, Seamus and, and uh, because of the ever-present femme fatale as we have in Brick. Now, Brick is the movie that we're talking about, mm-hmm. an obscure little piece if we walked out into the street and we couldn't find anybody who's ever seen it. We'd probably have to go to a film festival yeah. to find anyone However, who's seen it. However, if you want a really engaging evening, then take this in. If you want to impress your other with your film perspectives, then have this in. It has always surprised me how many film noir buffs have never seen Brick. <laughs> I know. I, well, because it's a high school setting. And there, you know, people are skeptical right away as to how you and can pull it off. And it, it off. generally doesn't get mentioned in books about film noir right. or descriptions of right. film noir. For some reason, it gets overlooked. And I think that's very unjustified. And because you have such a young protagonist in Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, it's just it just doesn't seem it's like what kind of a woo, uh, a weird movie is this. And once you get, I think right from the get-go, we're opening up in the tunnel, the, the, the yeah. causeway. The, the whole film was made in San Clemente, California. <laughs> and for, as far as I know, it's set there in the, in the film. is set yeah, in, good in that home community. For, a good home for crooks. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, to me, it never takes you out of the movie. Even the fact that they're high school-age kids saying these, these lines that you would expect out of a Dashiell Hammett novel, it never took me out of the film. The only name that people might remember after Gordon Levitt would be Richard Roundtree. 
Richard Roundtree plays the assistant principal <laughs> in the archetype role that would normally be the assistant district attorney. <laughs> right. So if you remember how the detective in film noir has to always keep the district attorney at bay, <laughs> keep himself from getting arrested, allow his detective work to continue without being harassed by the police, well, that all goes and falls on the assistant principal. And there's a wonderful scene in the assistant principal's office. Oh, I think this is a memorable scene. <laughs> and the dialogue is Right out of the scenes where you would have yeah. Sam Spade talking to the DA, the assistant DA, you know, keep the DA off my back and let me get this job done. And, and when you find out what's happening, don't kick in my homeroom door yeah. to get me. <laughs> and I like that relationship between them because the assistant principal or vice principal in some places is the disciplinarian. We know yes. that. Everybody yeah. knows that. You take that job, that's what you're getting. The, the relationship that he has with Brendan is a really good one. As you said, that scene in the office where they give and take the two of them as they're jacking around, knowing that something's coming down, <laughs> and Gordon Levitt is just as indifferent to the principal, except that he had to somehow give some information about somebody to them earlier on. Well, the, the assistant in. principal says... You either give me the meat or a fall guy, or you'll be the fall guy. <laughs> There's that really good stuff. And I would say, Ken, all of them can be considered archetypes. That there is something distinctive about each character in this film. They, and because it's so well-chosen. Ryan Johnson, the director, has so well-chosen them. And I think they're memorable. They're, they're all memorable in their own ways. And for me, as I was watching the movie, I was trying to think, oh, this is the mall. This is the assistant DA. Yeah. This is obviously the brain, the, the one that the detective goes to for information. And he does such a good job of translating those archetypes into these characters. And there's a novelty in watching these characters being portrayed by these 19, 20, 21 years. In the case of the brain, he was only 16. Yeah, right. When they I made love the, the movie. brain, right? With the thick glasses, with of the, course. The, the glasses that were so thick, the actor couldn't see out of them. So they actually had to grind a spot where he could see out of. <laughs> <laughs> and he's always against a wall or something. I mean, yeah. the, yeah. the attention to detail that, that Ryan. And Johnson puts into this the costumes a lot of the costumes in this movie because this movie had no budget to buy anything so they rented and they borrowed costumes they had a great costume woman on the, on the film and she had a lot of connections to small boutique houses right. and she put out feelers and said hey would you like to lend something to the movie that you'll will get noticed and as a result they got tons of this of pieces, purses and shoes and necklaces from little fashion boutiques. Ken, you gotta love the little ranch house where they where everything takes. Oh, oh, they yeah. have the big. Yeah. Well, and and, and Ryan Johnson crooks. says that they they wanted a rundown, <laughs> beat up place. And by this point, when they filmed this movie in two thousand four, there was no such place left in San Clemente. San Clemente was filled with you know five million dollar McMansions, <laughs> but then they stumbled upon this house that was a week away from being demolished, <laughs> and they managed to get in and use it two days before they tore the house down. And when you have a conference of these thugs together and they're discussing their work, you have Ma coming in with cornflakes or something? Oh, it's hysterical. <laughs> now, Ryan Johnson says he was trying not to wink at the audience. He was trying not. But I'm sorry, Ryan, that's wrong. That's not true. You know, you didn't have to dress the pin as Barnabas Collins. You didn't have to put the pin in the back of a black Chrysler minivan with a table lamp. Yeah. <laughs> you, you didn't have to have Mom come in with a plate of cookies. All of this is, is your doing, and it is a way of winking at the audience and saying, Hey, 
we know that you're in on this, and we're having fun with you. Well, Ken, you would have to say that, that, I, that I, Wink, think very pleasantly as I see the use of public telephones on this without their darn, <laughs> darn cell phones. It is so delightful well, to see him going all the time to the public phone. And, when they, and that, that phone booth moved around because there were no payphone booths in San Clemente in 2004, so they brought one in and set it right there on the side I, of the street. I love it. I keep looking at it and saying, yeah, you know, when you think of how important cell phones are now in our films. Yeah. And in particular in crime films, to look at this, you're wondering even how it gets through. I mean, how does this how does this gizmo work? I grew up on public phones, but now I've I've lost any sense of them except when I saw him constantly going to that phone, and it works for him. And they even get calls in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, I mean they, how to work this? It, it, it is a a thing that they had to have for the script. It's an anachronism. Yeah. It has no business being there. It was actually put right next to the street with the door opening into the street, which is, uh, if you catch that, and uh, it's... And even Ryan Johnson comments that it was absurd to have this phone booth sitting there. And to this day, people try to track down the filming locations, and they they go to this intersection, and they're looking for the phone booth. Well, the phone booth was never there. It was moved in, moved out, moved in, moved out. I love watching first-time director movies because they have so much more freedom than a studio movie does. And they're allowed to have a voice that would not normally get past a studio production. There's nobody looking over Ryan Johnson's shoulder and checking his dailies every night, saying, well, well, that that makes no sense. You can't do that. And it's because of these first-time films. When we look at at, at the list of first-time films, it includes Monty Python and the Holy Grail, first film for Terry Gilliam, Duel, Spielberg's first film, THX 1138, Lucas's first film, Dark Star, John Carpenter's film. All of these films are cult films because they have such, the, uh, such a fresh, adventurous voice that a studio would never have put up with. And, you know, they, besides the telephone booth and the oddity of Ryan Johnson's first time around, this is seriously about drugs. I mean, and we were very concerned in 2005 yeah. about drugs and about young people and drugs, and they don't hammer that. It's just, it just happens to be like that brick that we yeah. talked about at the beginning. It's, it's an odd symbol, but it's there. The drugs a, are there so that there is the crime element yeah. uh, to the story in place of the, you know, the black bird, for instance. Uh, but they don't pl- it doesn't play a crucial role. No. There's, a little, there's a subplot about somebody had laced the brick and somebody had gotten poisoned from the lacing of it. And somebody was accused of having been responsible. And that's sort of the underlying subplot to the whole story, yes. the narrative. But ultimately, it's really the death of Emily that is driving the story. And wouldn't you say, similar perhaps to, to uh, the new iteration of Mean Girls, which is a musical, or the class structure of high school? how one is from the outside or the inside. And as you had said, fortunately, he was uh, Gordon Levitt's character had been inside, which made it a little bit easier for him to figure out who was was committing what crime and what happened to his girlfriend. But still, it is about the social strata of high school. While he's an outsider in a sense, they all are. They're punks, and they're not in the higher echelon of the high school. So it's a different kind of high school movie. And that's one of the things that's so clever about this script is that Ryan Johnson managed to take the character archetypes from a movie like Fast Times at Ridgemont High and merge them with the character archetypes of Dashiell Hammett and find characters to represent and bring them together. And it works beautifully. It does. I would have to agree. Johnson showed an awful lot of promise, and now that he's doing big-time movies now, there's more promise here than he's been able 
to to exercise and probably because of your thesis that when you're a first time director it's a wide open field for you when you're a first time director you have no idea what you're getting yourself <laughs> into you think you do but then it all starts rolling and it's like a train that is moving really really slow it took 6 years to get this movie into production so that train is what just inching along inching along inching uh. along. then it starts picking up speed and then it's going faster and faster and faster then you're in production and suddenly you're running to try to keep up with it because they described during the filming how they would shoot for six, eight, ten hours because they had to get all this stuff in the can because that was the day they had to shoot at yeah, that location. Yeah, yes, and you can imagine the energy, the different kind of energy that gives. And you've got to be so creative yeah. with the time and with your re- what little resources you have. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the set dresser said that she was forced to turn herself into a thief <laughs> because when they got kicked out of the, the back of the um, restaurant that they wanted to film the scenes with the, the two uh, thugs and the meeting place, <laughs> uh, they ended up going back to the uh, school parking lot to film those yes, scenes. Yes, yes. They stole one of the, the, the restaurant's grocery carts and oh, took it back uh, with yes. them to, oh, yeah. as a set piece. Well, K.G. Klein, the movie is Brick, and in your sc- scouting around for more things to feed that capacious <laughs> mind of yours and finding Brick, I'm so glad you offered it up again. I had seen it years ago, but I had forgotten it. As there, you know, we have thousands of films to pick from for cinema classics. So when somebody has an interest like you, right on it. I'm, I'm all for it. And it proved aces here for us. <laughs> and I think that anybody who didn't hear about it before but is, is listening to us now and is thinking about it, the two of us put our reputations on the line to say you will not be disappointed. Definitely a film worth checking out. <laughs>